God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 2, verse 14. What we're going to look at today is who gave himself for us. And then in Titus 2, 14, we read, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. To understand the ministry of the Son of God, we must learn what Jesus gave his life for. It was for the cleansing of men's iniquity in order to purify unto himself a people zealous to do good works, teaching us as well that where sin is in control, Christ cannot really be served, nor will divine works really be produced. Strong's Concordance defines iniquity, anomia, as lawlessness, its usage includes lawlessness, iniquity, disobedience, sin. Helps Word Studies further adds that anomia is the utter disregard for God's law, His written and living Word. All men born naturally are born in this state, so that in their flesh men will have no true regard for either God or God's laws over them. David speaks of his own condition of being born in sin. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Iniquity at its core is what produces separation from God. It is because of this that Jesus came to redeem men from it. For those in iniquity have no true connection to God at all. They are estranged from God's presence because their sin makes them to be so. In Isaiah 55, 2, we read, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Thus, when men sin, they will remove themselves from God's holy presence, ultimately finding themselves alienated from both God and eternal life. Barnes on Isaiah 59, 2, have separated. The word used here, conveys the idea of division, usually by a curtain or a wall. Thus, the firmament is said to have divided or separated the waters from the waters of Genesis 1-6. The idea here is that their sins were like a partition between them and God, so that there was no contact between them and Him, end quote. Sin creates division and separation between God and man, and its separable barrier that without atonement for sin cannot be breached. Iniquity, therefore, will so divide men from God's presence and so separate them from God's face that God will no longer hear their prayers. To God, then, those who despise His laws, He finds even their prayers an abomination. Proverbs 28.9 He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law even his prayer shall be abomination. None therefore should think that when men set aside God's laws, that God has any respect toward their prayers, let alone will save them. Benson on this verse. He that turneth away his ear, or he that obstinately refuses to yield obedience to God's commands, even his prayer shall be abomination. To God whose laws he despises, God will abhor and reject his person and all his services. 
He, says Lord Clarion, who will not hearken to what God directs, nor do what he enjoins, hath no reason to pretend to ask anything of him. If we live like heathens or infidels, our Christian prayers do but affront his majesty, and our praises depress his glory. End quote. Not only will God forsake men because of their iniquity, but he also promises to punish them for it. In Isaiah 13, 11 we read, And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. The pulpit commentary on this. I will punish the world for their evil. Here the prophecy certainly goes beyond the destruction of Babylon and becomes a general warning to the wicked of all countries. Each country is to feel that its turn will come. Punishment will fall especially on the unjust, the proud, and the haughty. End quote. It is God's promise that he will punish inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Sin, therefore, will not be allowed to remain unaddressed by God, as he shall, when it is fully ripened, and God has had his fill with it, punish it. It is the vain hope of sinners that their sin and iniquity will never be accounted to them. Yet this hope is not based on divine revelation, but only on fanciful human imagination. Isaiah 26, 21 now. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. Again, we are looking at iniquity to observe how strongly God is against it, but how also God's Son came to completely and fully redeem men from it. In Exodus 34, 9 we read, And he said, If now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thine inheritance. Sin and iniquity will prohibit men from receiving from God any divine inheritance. Because for men to receive anything from God, they must be pardoned first. Thus, nowhere is God's pardon for sin needed more than when people are stiff-necked. Simply because if men remain stubborn and resistant to change in their hearts, then God will allow their destruction. Exodus 33.3 Unto a land flowing with milk and honey, and this is the Lord speaking, for I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. This should teach us that in regards to iniquity, which is here defined as lawlessness and being blatantly stiff-necked, it can easily lead to the Lord not only withdrawing His presence, but also destroying those whom He has called to be His people. Iniquity, potentially removing what is a promise of God, so that what people previously hoped for will never be fulfilled. This is the great danger of all iniquity, as it will, if not repented of, and atone for, remove men from God's promised inheritance. The iniquity in man more than able to prevent any reception of God's hopes for man. 
Sin, therefore, should not be taken lightly, lest what could be ours is forever lost. Saul's sin is what forfeited his earthly kingship. Even as sin today can prevent men from receiving any spiritual inheritance. If men were left without divine intervention, then nothing but punishment from God would await them. The Lord thus reaches out to men to ultimately save them from his own judgment. God also aware that fallen man will not by himself ever turn back to God. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, we read, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. Now listen to this. There is none that understandeth, and there is none that seeketh after God. Barnes on this verse. There is none that understandeth. In the Hebrew, God is represented as looking down from heaven to see, that is, to make investigation, whether there were any that understood or sought after Him. This circumstance gives not only high poetic beauty to the passage, but deep solemnity and awfulness. God, the searcher of hearts, is represented as making investigation on this very point. He looks down from heaven for this very purpose, to ascertain whether there were any righteous. In the Hebrew, it is not asserted, though it is clearly and strongly implied that none such were found. That fact, the apostle states, if, as the result of such an investigation, none were found, if God did not specify that there were any such, then it follows that there were none. For none could escape notice of his eye, and if there had been any, the benevolence of his heart would have led him to record it, end quote. Sin is so in control of the sinner and produces such a low condition of character that God is forgotten. In this condition, men become no different than the beasts of the earth, who care nothing for divine worship or fellowship with God's holy presence. Ecclesiastes 3.18 I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. When then men leave God, or are driven away from God's presence, they become as beasts of the earth exactly like those God first decreed that men or they should rule over. We see this in Nebuchadnezzar and God's punishment of him. Daniel chapter 5, verse 21. And he was driven from the sons of man, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till or until he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men and that he, God, appointeth over it whomsoever he will. Man's natural state, because he is born in iniquity, will be manifested by him not only searching for God, but also setting himself against God. Isaiah 45, 8. 
Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou, or thy work? He hath no hands. The sinner's natural condition, because it is one of lawlessness, despises being subject to divine rule and has great internal contempt for God's laws. 2 Chronicles 36, 16. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Jesus also spoke of not giving holy things to unholy and godly men, who instead of repenting for sin, loved walking in it. Matthew 7, 6. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Jesus therefore instructed his disciples to bypass giving anything spiritual to those who, like brute beasts, were deficient in any real sincere interest in heavenly manners. And like swine would, if perils of truth were cast before them, do nothing but trample them under their feet. Such a disregard for holy things is still seen today. This because men are controlled and influenced by a carnal nature from birth that lacks not only interest in the spiritual realm, but also maintains contempt for its creator. This is what iniquity is and what it produces. And if left unchecked and unreproved by God, will lead men to certain death. It is because of man's carnal condition of being born bound to an iniquitous nature that leads him to certain destruction that Jesus came to the earth who gave himself for us. It is one thing to give something of yourself to save another's life. It is quite another thing to give your own life. Jesus thus gave himself for us and not simply something of himself, but himself. Without this goodness and generosity of God's Son to give his life for sin, no sinner could ever be saved from the bondage of his own lawless nature. Jesus' unselfishness to die for others' rebellious nature also is the only thing that ultimately saves men from having to die for it themselves. Informing us that there are none who are saved who do not owe their entire salvation to Jesus giving his life for them. As a good shepherd, Jesus, the Son of God, was willing to die for those whom God had called him to save. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Ellicott on this verse. Giveth his life for the sheep. This was true of the actual shepherds, of whose devoted bravery many instances are told. A striking one is that of David himself, who rescued the lamb of his father's flock from the mouth of the lion and the bear. That self-sacrifice that would lead the shepherd to risk his own life for that of his flock has its ideal fulfillment in him who is the good shepherd and will give his life for mankind, end quote. 
that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Those whom Christ saves, his sacrifice redeems from all iniquity. This is not hyperbolic, but is the reality of all whom Christ saves. To save from all iniquity is the accomplished work of the Savior. Ephesians 1.4 According as he hath chosen us in him, this is God chose us in Christ, before the foundation of the world, and this is the purpose, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. This was God's purpose concerning the ministry of his son, that through his son's sacrifice, those called by God through him might be holy and completely without blame before God in love. Since Christ's death fully satisfies the penalty for the sinner's sin, then no other punishment is needed to pay the penalty for sin, Romans 6.10. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Barnes on this. He died unto sin. His death had respect to sin. The design of his death was to destroy sin, to make atonement for it, and thus put it away, end quote. When Jesus uttered his last words on the cross, it is finished, and then died, man's rebellious, recalcitrant, and unholy nature was atoned for. The holy and divine nature of the Son of God dying for the vile nature of sinful man. How monumental, then, is the death of God's Son, that through it, for all who believe upon Him, their sin nature died with the Savior. The cross to the Christian, if perceived properly, is in actuality the death of sin in themselves. For what ultimately frees the saint from sin is that Christ took its appointed end. The means by which Christ also ultimately saves men after he has died for their sins is by regeneration of the Holy Spirit. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, and this is how, by the washing of regeneration and by renewing of the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. It is Christ who died on the cross for sin, and Christ, after he was risen, who sent the promise of God's Holy Spirit. By giving his people the Spirit of God, he replaces man's iniquitous nature with a holy nature. Hence, Jesus not only removes sin from the believer, but also gives them, according to God's promise, a new holy nature that cannot sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For when we were without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Matthew Henry on this. Christ died for sinners, not only such as were useless, but such as were guilty and hateful, such that their everlasting destruction would be to the glory of God's justice. Christ died to save us, not in our sins, but from our sins. And we were yet sinners when he died for us. Nay, the carnal mind is not only an enemy to God, but enmity itself. But God designed to deliver from sin 
and to work a great change. While the sinful state continues, God loathes the sinner, and the sinner loathes God. Zechariah 11, uh, 8, Zechariah 11, 8. And that for such as these Christ should die is a mystery. No other such instance of love is known, so that it may well be the employment of eternity to adore and wonder at it, end quote. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father. Another purpose in Christ dying for our sin is so that he might deliver us from a corrupt and evil world, which is both controlled and ruled by sin. It was the voluntary act of Jesus giving himself for sin so that we might be given occasion to escape from this sinful world. Absent Jesus' sacrifice, every man would remain bound to not only his own sin, but would also be reserved for God's judgment, which will one day descend upon the whole world. Psalm 145, uh, verse 20. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy. Christ's death in giving himself for sin is therefore what has freed Christians from the heavenly judgment which will come upon a wicked world ruled by sin. Jeremiah 10.10 But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth shall tremble and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. Benson on this. At his wrath, the earth shall tremble. Even the strongest and stoutest of the kings of the earth, nay, the earth itself, as firmly as it is fixed, when he pleases, is made to quake, and the rocks to tremble, and the nations, though they join together to contend with him, and unite their forces against him, shall be found utterly unable, not only to resist, but even to abide his indignation, end quote. Pool on this same verse. The nations shall not be able to abide his indignation, not able either to stop it or bear it, but must stoop and fall under it. Psalm 76, 7. Uh, the wicked will not be able to stand in judgment. Psalm 1, 5, end quote. It is the knowledge of Jesus Christ that gives men opportunity to escape the corruption of sin in this world. The ministry of Jesus Christ, therefore, has for its ultimate purpose redeeming men from sin, men also who desire no longer to remain in the same state of corruption, either in their bodies or as the world around them. Hence, those called by Christ will possess a deep inward desire to no longer be like the common, unholy, and unclean men of this earth. Tired of their own sin, and the ungodliness around them, one chosen by Christ, will see his occasion to escape, not only from his own personal sin, but also the sinful world he has by natural birth been born into. Sin, though, to an apostate, will not be deemed as such a bad thing, but rather something which they believe they have the individual right to commit, and will at the same time experience pleasure committing it. Barnes on 2 Peter 2.20 Apostates become worse than they were before their professed conversion, end quote. 
Hebrews 7.25 now. Wherefore he, Christ, is able to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Though religion cannot keep a man from falling away from God, the powerful ministry of God's Son can. For he will strengthen his people so that they never will turn back from following God. It is thus the ability of Christ that saves men by his own powerful intercession for them. Barnes on Hebrews 7.25 Wherefore he is able also, as he ever lives and ever intercedes, he has power to save. He does not begin the work of salvation and then relinquish it by reason of death. But he lives on as long as it is necessary that anything should be done for the salvation of his people. We need a Savior who has power. And Christ has shown that he has all the power which is needful to rescue man from eternal death to the uttermost. This does not mean simply forever, but that he has power to save them so that their salvation shall be complete. He does not abandon the work midway. He does not begin a work which he is unable to finish. He can aid us as long as we need anything done for our salvation. He can save all who will entrust their salvation to his hands. That come unto God by him, in his name, or depending on him. To come to God is to approach him for pardon and salvation. Seeing he ever liveth, and this is again Christ, he does not die as the Jewish priests did, to make intercession for them. He constantly presents the merits of his death as a reason why we should be saved. The precise mode, however, in which he makes intercession in heaven for his people is not revealed. The general meaning is that he undertakes their cause and assists them in overcoming their foes and in their endeavors to live a holy life. He does in heaven whatever is necessary to obtain for us grace and strength, secures the aid which we need against our foes, and is the pledge or security for us that the law shall be honored and the justice and truth of God maintained. Though we are saved, it is reasonable to presume that this is somehow by the presentation of the merits of his great sacrifice, and that that is the ground on which all grace is obtained. For those who come to God through Jesus Christ, he is able to save to the uttermost. It is the ministry of the living Son of God even now to provide both intercession and atonement for sinners who come to God by him. Jesus is alive, and his priestly ministry saves even today. Everyone who comes to God confessing and looking for forgiveness of sins against God. The degree that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost and to the farthest extent those who come to God by him is seen by nothing being able to take them out of his hand. For Christ's ministry shall both protect and preserve the saved until they are in the Father's kingdom. John 10, 28. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man 
pluck them out of my hand. Those who are Christ's are in his hands. By this it is meant that they are in his guarded possession. Because of this, they are secure and should not fear that anything or anyone can separate them from Christ. The power of the Son of God to save those who confess Him as their Lord, greater than any power attempting to remove them from His hand. Once a man or woman is fully Christ's, they should rejoice in the fact that they are safely and forever under the shepherd's protection. Psalm 95.7 For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, and the sheep of His hand, today if you will hear His voice. By Christ's power then, and not his people's power, are both their lives and destinies preserved. And in John 17, 12, we read, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. It was by Christ's power that his disciples were kept in God's name. By Christ's ministry then, that his powerful influence on his disciples' lives, that they, except for Judas, were completely kept in God's name. Jesus, therefore, attributes his disciples remaining in God's presence to his own involvement in their lives. We should take great comfort in this simply because it both has and will be found true of us that by Christ's power, we ultimately enter God's presence, something that if we were still slaves to iniquity, would never happen. Amen.